0: are you talking about you insane hollywood ass? so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30
1: dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
0: 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees Promotate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
1: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, it's my great pleasure to host Jalal Aboukater. Jalal is a Palestinian writer, a freelance journalist, and uh, most importantly, is a Jerusalemite. I must say that besides his work, which is fascinating, and his reporting from Jerusalem, one of the things that I cherish the most is that Jalal is a fellow marathon runner. And we will indeed talk about running, and more importantly, running around Jerusalem. Jalal, welcome.
0: Thank you, Roberto. Happy to be here.
1: Jalal, the first question is the usual. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city?
0: Um, I think Jerusalem, well, today I would say that I I feel a very strong belonging to Jerusalem, and I'm always proud of being a Jerusalemite. But this sense of belonging, it, was, it came from years of experience of learning um, to, to love the place I'm from. As, as I grew up, basically, I was very normal, not just in politics. My dad was a journalist. Of course, there are politics in the house. And I know Jerusalem is an old city. My my world, my vision was very small, very limited. But I was fascinated by history generally. I was always playing video games, reading books, Roman history, medieval history, castles, uh, walls. Um, History generally was a fascinating subject for myself. And growing up, I started connecting my city of Jerusalem as as a central point in, in many points of, like, significant points in history. And I understood where Jerusalem stood throughout different periods throughout the past two thousand years, and I felt a growing significance of the city, and that's where my belonging to the city even grew further. My dad being uh, from Silwan, um, his his uh, his mother being a Jerusalemite from within the walls itself, and my mother being from Lifta, which uh, the, the two are like the polar opposites, but the two are the biggest um, towns. Around Jerusalem, around the city walls, um, I felt I was the child of Jerusalem, and um, it took a few years, I think, of cultivating this this belonging. But I feel very proud, and I'm not sure if it's my ego talking, but it's just I feel at the center of the world. Like everyone looks at Jerusalem, whether it's a religion or um, um, just spirituality generally. I felt like I was I was very lucky to be born in this city that the whole world looks at. And um, the, the 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 holy places and the fact that my grandparents are buried on the at the cemetery that is literally the closest to what they call the Mercy Gate. We call it Bab al um, which is like the closest place. Which I learned that that's where um, whenever there's um, the 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 dead will rise after whenever I don't know. Like those will be the first to be blessed by Christ or the Messiah or whoever is going to be coming back. I just felt like. I'm lucky to be from this place and Jerusalem became a very strong part of my identity as a a young person. And honestly, I'm proud of how central it is to many people around the world. And I feel that it helped me create my own personality in a way that um, I'm just proud to be a Jerusalemite. And I think people are jealous of myself being a Jerusalemite. So that's fair enough.
1: (laughs) That's fascinating. A previous guest of a podcast uh, as a Jerusalemite himself, mentioned the fact that sometimes you would have loved that the holiness of Jerusalem would reside somewhere else. And you and use some strong words saying like, I wish God sometimes would just move to another place and keep Jerusalem as a regular city. I was wondering if you ever been bothered by the fact that Jerusalem is also somehow owned by people all around the world, or at least they claim some sort of connection with the city
0: um it, it is it's always been an interesting thing for myself I think um my interest in medieval history um I, I learned that uh, the the first maps of the world were painted in a way where Jerusalem was the very central point in in the maps that were uh, the very most ancient maps painted in European history of course um and I did always uh, like growing up I had those thoughts of uh, for example, like the Jewish people, why are they claiming Jerusalem to be their holy city, and why not just leave it for us and go to another holy place which they have significance? For example, I was I was just as a kid thinking Saudi Arabia. That's like um, there are many Jewish tribes which I've learned through through history studies that they used to live in areas there. Why wouldn't they go elsewhere? Why did they choose Jerusalem? But I think I think growing up, <clears throat> understanding the significance of Jerusalem. Um, in a way, not many people can call themselves Jerusalemites or people who belong to Jerusalem in the sense that I, 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 I may say that um, there are pilgrims who visit uh, all year round. There's Easter, there's Christmas, there's the Jewish holidays, there's a Muslim uh, Ramadan. It's well, it would be very busy if without the restrictions of the occupation. But there are uh, pilgrims who visit Jerusalem from the entire world, uh, even people who are not um, religious oriented, maybe just spiritual basis. They want to come and see and understand why this city holds such significance. And myself being a very spiritual person, I think, growing up, um, I could feel that uh, gravity in Jerusalem, and I could feel it. Um, it, it it's nice to, to feel like I was, I'm a Palestinian, of course. I'm not a foreigner who moved here just a generation ago. Uh, my, my lineage can be traced back to Jerusalem for hundreds of years, like any other Palestinian Jerusalemite. And that's not something those um, visitors or tourists or, or pilgrims have a, can can say, for example. So I'm not annoyed. Actually, I'm just happy they would um, happy they come visit. As long as they respect us and see us, that's something I uh, sometimes write about. If they come and they see us, the Palestinians of Jerusalem, it's a different relationship with them. Of course, what Israel does with the tourism industry in Jerusalem is that come here, take this narrative. It's a very um different narrative than what we understand of Jerusalem um the tour groups would for example avoid Palestinian areas avoid Palestinian shops and just walk over us and then leave I I would love tourists to come and visit my Jerusalem and not the whatever Israel created over our the ruins of our Jerusalem
1: you open a kind of worms and I probably going back (laughs) to pick up on some of that but I I just wanted to uh use what you said to remind also the listeners that as much as I work on Jerusalem, I lived in Jerusalem, I love the city, I know the city, I know how to go around, but I'm not Jerusalemite. And I think this is the big difference between myself and you and all of the others Jerusalemites that have been on the shore. There is this sense of belonging, which you can only create when you are in the city and you're from the city, it's it's different. And, and I agree with you that uh, You know, there is a difference and it should be highlighted. Uh, There might be a lot of people coming from all around the world. They get to Nova City, but still, there's something missing there. I picked up something interesting while you were talking, uh, which is a little bit of a Scottish accent. (laughs) I know you started in Dundee. And that's got me thinking about asking you, how was to be a Jerusalemite in Dundee, Scotland? And for many that may not know where Dundee is, it's just north of Edinburgh, on the um, east coast of Scotland, and some sort of an isolated uh, small city. I mm-hmm. wonder, how did you feel there? How did people react when you were saying, well, I'm from Jerusalem?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, a, I'm, I'm happy to be talking about this, actually, because um, when you said you lived in Jerusalem, but you didn't feel that sense of belonging, because I lived in Scotland for four years, and... Um, I'm a person who's very like, uh, impressionable. I learn very quickly and I get involved very quickly. Um, it didn't take me long before landing in Scotland to join forces with those the people who are calling for independence vote and uh, uh, campaigning with them to get Scottish independence from, from, from the UK back then. The campaign was just beginning. I was involved from early days. My friends, um, sound politics, loved every one of them um they, they they taught me so much i learned through them asking questions experience the people there are super welcoming um my earliest days in scotland i would uh, introduce myself as a jerusalem i am from jerusalem it's i don't know but it's hard sometimes to tell people i'm from palestine it was like pakistan or whatever like it's people don't know where palestine is sometimes annoyingly enough I would like, you know, Israel. They <laughs> say yes, Israel. I was like, yeah, that's the same one. It's like, no, it's they're not next to each other. No, that land that you think is Israel is to me is Palestine, and it's a hard thing to explain. And for many in the UK, I think saying Jerusalem is, um, it's more understandable. It's like I'm a Jerusalem, I am a Palestinian Jerusalem, I am from Jerusalem. Uh, Very early on, my girlfriend, um, she was um, super impressed of the fact that I was a a Jerusalemite. She kept telling her parents about this guy I'm seeing, he's from Jerusalem. And they were also excited, Jerusalem, the holy city, the place we always hear about, we want to go to do pilgrimage, we want to go visit. Um, They find it very curious and interesting. It was like, tell us more about Jerusalem. Um, Of course I would, but at the same time, I was also getting myself very involved in being in my Scottish um, adopted identity. Like they were adopting me and I was very accepting of their uh, of their hospitality. I was very happy to be in Scotland. But the thing is, that you mentioned earlier about living in Jerusalem, like I felt a very strong belonging to Scotland. Uh, four years is not a short time, of course. And um, I loved uh, whiskey. I loved haggis and I loved um, Kaylee dancing. I think uh, there's nothing else that makes you Scottish <laughs> maybe there's of course there's plenty I love the locks I love running in the mountains and, and all that it was a beautiful country but at the same time I knew after the four years ended that I don't want to try to even stay here because I feel like I gained enough experience I've lived in Scotland I love this my second home but at heart I'm a Jerusalemite and um, the fact I'm not sure if of course you know the legal status of Jerusalemites but I, I don't have the luxury to live abroad for too long with risking being a Jerusalemite of, of losing my blue ID card issued by Israel. I thought nothing is worth the risk of losing that. I am a Jerusalemite. I choose to come back here and just live here for as long as it needs me to. <laughs> I'm happy here. It was a very interesting relationship between Scotland and Jerusalem, but um, I love both places equally. I think they both had a major influence on, on my life growing up.
1: I find it fascinating. And uh, Mm. as I said, not only you picked up the accent, but also the Scottish spirit. And I think this is very, very interesting. I'm glad you mentioned (laughs) the question of the blue um, ID cards, because this is something, in time I discovered, not many Israeli actually know about it. They always see Palestinian Jerusalemites as some sort of like, well, the part of a state uh, uh, equal to uh, Palestinians, uh, citizens of Israel. But that's not the case. Uh, this is a unique, uh, uh, I would say, diplomatic and administrative arrangement, uh, but it's also highly problematic because as you mentioned, it doesn't really give you the right to stay away for too long because that status may be revoked. I was wondering if you can uh, just maybe briefly remind us uh, what is uh, the blue ID?
0: Um, The blue ID, of course, uh, most Israelis carry a blue ID, but when I say blue, I'm distinguishing it from the green and the orange IDs. The orange ID is the one issued to Palestinians in Gaza. The green ID is the one issued to Palestinians in the West Bank. And the blue ID, in comparison to those two, is the one issued to Palestinian Jerusalemites. Um, for example, I have this blue, uh, blue card that allows me to drive through Kalamdia, go to Ramallah, Jerusalem, and back every day, um, through checkpoints, of course, through the humiliation of a checkpoint, but at least I can travel through. Uh, my friends in the West Bank and Ramallah, they, cannot, they have to get a permit, for example. Um, I have some sort of freedom of movement. Um, I get coverage from the Israeli healthcare system, which is great. I've, I've got a booster job as well now. <laughs> But that's the extent of it. Um, imagine your entire life being controlled by this uh, document that says you're a temporary. Sorry, you're um, you're a resident of this place, even though my my parents' uh, their lineage goes back to Jerusalem way before the state was established. But I'm considered a temporary resident of Jerusalem, and as long as I have that card, um, I can go to Jerusalem and live in Jerusalem. If I live anywhere around, if I go even to uh, Tel Aviv or Ramallah, there's a risk that I may lose that if they sense that I'm not, I don't have Jerusalem as the center of my life. They, they created a category of Palestinians in Jerusalem with those ID, we're literally stateless. Uh, we have no passport or citizenship to any state. Um, the Israeli state does not recognize us as citizens. Of course, we are not, we don't have the rights of a citizen in Israel. Um, We do not have uh, any passport of the Palestinian Authority. We're not allowed to, of course. Uh, We have a temporary passport from Jordan, as they were the people who controlled Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, before 1967. That temporary passport is meant to ease up your travel, for for, for travel purposes, basically. Um, uh, It does not mean you're a citizen of Jordan, or can live in Jordan at all. So we're technically stateless, and the only document that I can carry, is that ID, and every day <laughs> with the, our entire lives, we've gone through phases of being absolutely anxious of moments that we could lose this ID. We, whenever a stressful moment comes up, whenever um, there's a tense thing happening outside, or any writing I do, or any activism, my parents would say, Jalal, what are you doing? um don't provoke them don't talk too much maybe they will come and um, inspect and maybe revoke your id the threat of revoking ids is a threat that every jerusalemite is fearing every day and we know of so many people friends and other families in jerusalem who had the the state uh, inspectors come and visit and say okay maybe your center of life is not jerusalem maybe you have a house elsewhere and they would take away the right to, to live in Jerusalem, they would take away their health care, they would just send that family to ruins basically and the fear is there with every Jerusalemite that we don't know what we could do, what the law is, at what moment they can revoke that ID card and we become even worse in our situation being stateless and having spent so, so much money <coughs> on lawyers, on getting some kind of recognition back so in a way, they've created this category of Palestinians who are always fearful for this document, always worried about losing it, about it being revoked by an Israeli. And there's nothing else we can hold on to. It's not a citizenship. There's no state protecting us. There's just this fact that we are residents of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, of course, a, a very um, crowded and busy city. The fact that we're expected to live our entire lives and our children's lives in Jerusalem is also uh, a bit... Uh, it just doesn't make sense because if I live in Ramallah for example or if I live anywhere just ten kilometers away from the borders of the municipal city of Jerusalem, they can take away my right to live, to go to Jerusalem ever again my 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 uh, dad's uh, sister and brothers um, were all Jerusalemites of course uh, they got married they left abroad to Canada to the states, and they all had the, their IDs revoked because um they, they left the country. A few years later, they tried to come back. with like, No, you come back with a visa and not with, a, with an ID card. So anyone who lives here for a year or two can risk losing that entire identity part of their character.
1: Uh, you've been away for four years. I've been abroad. I left Italy 20 years ago, but obviously, you know, no one's going to stop me if I want to go back. But yeah. on the other hand, if you want to whether it's for professional, personal reasons, you need to make choices which are very different. And you have to include also, you know, uh, the
0: question of a blue ID. When I was away uh, away for four years, but I had to come back every summer, of course, for a month at least to prove my, my presence. And uh, when I came back after my studies, I think during my studies, I tried to renew my ID card. It was becoming the old version. They wanted a new version. I went to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the Israeli Ministry, and they said, why are you away for so long? What are you doing wherever you are in Scotland? And I was like studying. I was like, "Okay, so you can't get an idea until you come back and and bring your degrees and sign the paper that you've done with your studies. You're completely done. And I had to come back after my studies in Dundee with my degree in my, my hand and show the officer like, look, i got my degree. I'm back. I'm going to stay here. I'm not going anywhere. I was like, are you sure? I was like, yes. And okay. They gave me a renewal for the ID card. It's just humiliating, really. Jalal, you've been uh, a guest on a numerous, um, I
1: would say, news uh, outlets, BBC, CNN, Sky News. And so this brings me to your job as a freelance journalist. How does it feel? What does it mean to be a a freelance journalist, someone reporting stories from Jerusalem, particularly from a Palestinian background?
0: Um, in Jerusalem, I feel I've, I've grown an experience in, in this field, especially in journalism and mostly uh, written journalism in the English language. And I always recognize that there's a lack of Palestinian journalists in Jerusalem who are reflecting a day-to-day life, reflecting what's happening on the street. Um, in many cases, um, the stories that get reported from Jerusalem, the, the stories we get to see uh, in the mainstream media, are always reported by a foreign journalist or an Israeli journalist who comes to Ramallah or to Jerusalem, or reports about the story. Not local Palestinians. Uh, the local Palestinians are not really uh, don't have enough space in, in the mainstream media to to tell their stories. I felt um, like cultivating my experiences over the years. I felt I was learning how to navigate this super tricky maze of how to talk about Palestine and and not be conceding to any um, false narratives or narratives that I don't wish to to engage in. I'm a very proud Palestinian Jerusalemite. I'm very proud of my identity. And in the past, they made made it very difficult for us to speak freely of of what we think and what we believe. Um, um, Sometimes they always wanna ask us like, okay, one state solution, two state solution, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't really care. <laughs> I just This is my Palestine, those are my people, and we're everywhere and we need our rights, we need our uh, this, this, this. And whatever solution you come up with has to guarantee that at least those rights are, are there. And solutions are not really the concern of us Palestinians, especially in Jerusalem, because we're, we're always um, at the center point of whatever uh, negotiations or events, Like there will be a scandal with the PA, the PA would be negotiating something, and then um, Jerusalem is the the point of contestation that um, breaks everything down, for example. Or there would be any uh, flare-up in violence or anything, and there's always Jerusalem at the center point of everything. So I thought this this last uh, period, this year, I felt empowered enough with others, of course, in Jerusalem, that we are the ones who... Always say what we want. Really, we want to speak our minds. We want to report factually. We want to reflect the stories of our own people in Jerusalem. We don't wish to be viewed from the lens of other people's um, writing or other, like, foreign journalists um, reporting. We are, on our own, are capable of reflecting our stories, and we all empowered each other by um, by literally being uncensored and going to those media outlets and speaking our minds and saying, we're unapologetically Palestinian. This is how we think, this is what we say. And if you don't take us, you're literally silencing our, our, our views. And I don't know, it's 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 about time people listen to us and especially in Jerusalem. And I felt this has been more demonstrated this year than ever before. When you heard Jerusalemite voices and I all just really wanna highlight how amazing the twin sisters, Mona and Muhammad Al-Kurd have, have been for the Arabic uh, audience and Muhammad for like the English uh, listening audience, both incredible in their own means, unapologetic in their narratives, and very honest and concise, and don't really fear a Zionist um, a backlash towards what they say, because we're humans, we have dignity, why should we be worried about someone else's feelings if we're the ones who are always trampled upon? So it's about time that we speak freely, and I felt empowered by this uh, wave recently. And I really took, took in that moment whenever I would be invited to speak on a TV station or invited to um, speak on radio, for example, I would be speaking my mind and saying, this is a Palestinian Jerusalemite speaking and you better hear it. <laughs> that's, that's what you want. This is what we think. As a Jerusalemite
1: uh, growing up in modern-day Jerusalem, you're also fluent in Hebrew i was wondering if you ever thought about kind of kind of right um but i was wondering if you ever thought about try to interact (coughs) with uh, the israeli uh, audience too one of my major issues um, that i discovered in time is that plenty of israelis don't don't really know much about palestinians because essentially the israeli media don't really talk about palestinians other than in a very uh, negative way or using certain tropes or about you know Terrorist, or they, uh, whether they may be. So without really providing a, a clear picture. And I was wondering if you feel like, uh, you know, the next step would be perhaps to, you know, for Palestinians to encroach into the Hebrew language uh, and say, look, this is who we are. And now we are also telling you this in your own language.
0: Very interesting question. And for me, I don't think it's my next step as it was probably my one of my earliest steps and i felt that uh, it really helped form myself my views about so many things of the, of the issue <clears throat> and to understand more of the israeli society i think in 2011 2010 maybe 2011 my, when my political awareness was just being uh, built Um, I did have some Israeli friends, Israeli journalist friends, considered friends, um, people I would talk to. Uh, At the beginning, I was, of course, um, very naive about so many topics and subjects. I was invited to write for a few Israeli outlets and in the English language, of course. Um, I did comment about some Israeli um, um, protest movements. I think uh, my first two pieces were about um, the peace um, Marches that happened in Jerusalem, I think 2011, perhaps. Um, I participated in those marches and I saw Israelis with signs calling for an end to the occupation and for a Palestinian state. There's like the leftist Israelis, um, liberal Zionists uh, among the crowds. <clears throat> a lot of people would be walking through their, those marches and groups. Uh, later on, there was the protest movement in Tel Aviv. Um, I think it was called J14, <clears throat> um, and I still felt very engaged with the, the Israeli political activism scene. I, I, I wrote a, a couple of other pieces, like a letter to those activists, and and I was like hoping, like you should address the occupation. You should address this, this, this. Those are like major issues. Perhaps if you think the economy is doing bad, uh, perhaps. There is a the problem that you should focus on the military spending, the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, and uh, that should that should concern you as, as economic activists, like, uh, social equality, or whatever. Uh, that was like not my next step. That was my fir- very very uh, very first early days, and I owe it to some friends as well who were talking to me then and saying, okay, so this outlet like liberal Zionists, what are they? And I was like understanding very early on, like they're really not interested in, in your in your welfare in that sense they they just want to guarantee a future of israel to be a jewish state <clears throat> and uh, the current policies of um, occupation prolonged occupation would threaten their vision of a jewish state next to a palestinian state for example the the reason they fight um not all of them of course but like zionism in a way it took me a while back then to understand it's like a Zionist is a Zionist and Zionist ideology does not really accept a Palestinian being from Palestine. I, I, I claim I'm a Palestinian, I'm from Palestine. The Zionist ideology itself does not really welcome that, that person, myself. And I felt if this is an exclusionary ideology, then I'm really against it. And I, there's no way to reconcile myself with this ideology. And um, that was like early, early, early days of my political um, ideas being formed. <clears throat> And I think throughout university I met Israelis as well. And later on I engaged with more Israelis during travels abroad and stuff. I think I had formed my 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 understanding of Judy society very early on. And there are some things that really it's not about dialogue or engagement. It's just about they really choose not to see us because if we talk, whenever we engage, there's always that point it's like it's just dead end. It's it's a locked uh, conversation. Like, I I want to live here with dignity. And they were like, but we can't have you over. (laughs) This is Jewish state. We can't have you all here. I was like, you came, like, it's just, it's a dead end conversation. And the fact that I learned it early on was very helpful for myself to be able to engage very normally and sit in civil way with most Israelis that I meet throughout my time. And I would always love to discuss what they think of their identity. Are they a Zionist, Israeli, or do they see themselves as a dwellers of a city, for example, of Tel Aviv, rather than Israeli itself, or a Zionist a liberal? To engage with the Israeli Hebrew media, it's literally, I don't think it's anyone's job, not mine, and I don't think the energy should be from us to do that. Like, I feel like that's a counter to, to the where the, our energy should, should be spent. I think our energy should be spent on ourselves first and foremost to be able to um, at least speak to each other and debate and discuss and understand our aspirations more than just talking to the Israelis because there is always chances. It's just themselves. They don't want to engage or understand or open their eyes to the fact that we're all here. They'd rather just like, shove under the carpet, ignore for now, the problem will be solved later, they're living a very luxurious life, I go to Tel Aviv like all so often, and I go. Um, I have the freedom of travel of course, so I, <clears throat> I, I can see, understand their lifestyle and I, I'm with them and among them in Jerusalem all my time, all my life, I see the world they live in, I just choose not to engage because I feel like I'm not really welcome and they're not going to be welcoming me. I'm not a guest here. I'm a Palestinian. And he's like, Oh, you're Palestinian? That's so interesting. It's like, No, don't do this to me. So it's just a thing that I think I moved, past, I moved past early on. Today, I speak to those who are willing to speak, of course, those who are willing to understand, to see each other as equals, as equal human beings, not that um, get away from me. <laughs> just, yeah.
1: I feel that what you said about the choice. Not to see the other is a key point, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview. Um, Israeli policies, you know, implemented by the Ministry for Tourism, to take tourists essentially through certain routes that avoid, you know, any contact with Palestinians, is then reflected in, you know, at large in the very same uh, choice not to see the other. And I think this is an important uh, aspect. Uh, which I personally also chose to highlight more and more in the podcast because I feel like uh, we talk about Jerusalem, but many, many people, far too many people uh, are always looking at one side of Jerusalem and uh, they, you know, mentally depopulated, uh, you know, the Palestinian side. And that, that's, that's wrong. It's literally wrong. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there's certain uh, uh, Instagram accounts that, you know, keep posting pictures of of Jerusalem. You know, these are very popular Instagram accounts. They do gather, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, but essentially, you know, the Palestinian component, uh, it's always neglected. And it's interesting because whenever they post uh, pictures related to Christian sites, then it becomes international, you know, and the local component just simply disappears. And so I'm glad yeah. that you mentioned that, because I, I think it's important to highlight that it's a choice. It's not random. It's not uh, the byproduct of, yeah. you know, culture and society. But it, th- there is a choice not to see the other. Yeah. And this brings me to ask a question. You're a storyteller, and you've certainly talked about, and you've been very vocal about, uh, Silwan, Sheikh Jarrah, Lift Up. But I also was, was wondering if you ever come you know, you come across stories that might be little known outside uh, uh, Palestine, outside Israel, but that you would like to um, tell uh, you know, our listener.
0: Um, I think that the most uh, interesting thing, <coughs> sorry, I'm, I had a call a few days ago, I'm just recovering, <laughs> and it's uh, still there. Um... With the story of Sheikh Jarrah and the media attention that it, it had gathered from around the world, uh, people were oh, just looking, it was like ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem, what is that? And people were just li- literally tuning into Palestine for the first time to see what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, that this was a very significant thing that happened this year. And um, I just remember to ask my dad, it was like, dad, we have a house in Western Jerusalem in Qatamon neighborhood, right? Can you tell me more about this? I was like, of course. I can give you all the papers. I can give you all documents. And you carry on the task of fighting for this house. <laughs> and um, it was a very exciting um, like, moment for myself because um, it's like it, you, I just opened Pandora's box. I was asking my dad about our family history in Jerusalem, his, uh, his uncles, um, how and why they lived in Beth Hanina and not Silwan. Um, in the 50s, um, I later understood that their house in Salwan was lying near um, Zion Gate in Bab bin Nabi we call it. And uh, that was the area that became um, the, the ceasefire zone. And they had to leave the houses back then in 48. So between 48 and 67, they had to leave to go to Amman and then back to uh, Jerusalem. They lived in Bet Hanin in the 50s. I learned very a lot of interesting aspects about my family, the fact that I have um, my dad's uncles who went to Nicaragua, um, those who were um, sandinistas, and the other was uh, pro-government. I don't know. It was just like, a lot of history of my family was just coming out from the fact that my grandpa owned a house in Otamo neighborhood. And that um, specific story, I was like, I would go to work every day, I would speak to my friends, I would see people discuss this house, discuss those ideas, and then I would hear more stories of more uh, Jerusalemite families, and I would learn more about the, the Jerusalemite neighborhoods in West Jerusalem, uh, mostly, al where families, uh, full families were just living there uh, before 1948, and how they had been forced out of their homes, even the families which chose to stay for longer and longer were eventually forced violently out of their homes, and I have papers that show my grandpa's name uh, as a purchaser in the 30s. And then uh, suddenly there's this gap, and the Israeli land authority is selling this house to some, I don't know, undisclosed uh, side. And the same papers I have in my hands, like, I'm looking here, like, how, how, how did this happen? Learning about the, the, the laws that they created to steal our property, it's like Okay, so they're coming to Sheikh Jarrah to claim that they have um, property and they have the deeds for something from the 1800s or 1900s, and they are doing, doing a whole court case, um, and the Israeli state is really thinking that they will succeed, and we all understand that the Israeli state, that's how it functions, it will succeed, those, com- those um, agencies that are fighting for um, taking those homes from the Palestinians, have a stronger agency at the Israeli court system to actually take those properties as if they were once owned by Jews, and now they go back to Jews. But at the same time, West Jerusalem is filled with houses, thousands of them, that we Palestinian families still have the deeds for. And we have the old, old papers from the uh, t- Turkish documents, the uh, British documents, uh, Jordanian documents. We have so many papers that prove ownership to those houses. and. We can go there, we can take pictures of the house, we can recognize exactly where it's, where, where it's located. Of course, you just need some visual memory from older people. But there are so many houses that belong to us that were literally stolen by uh, the law of absentee property that they created in 1951. And they are still doing court cases that Supreme Court trying to take those houses in East Jerusalem. And it just felt like they keep, claiming that Jerusalem is a unified city, but at the same time, there are two sets of laws, one for the Jewish population, one for the, us, for the Palestinians. And I thought this should be my focus for a while. And I did just go very deep in this topic, I think, near July, August, like June, July, I think, mainly. I thought, like, if they really want to ethnic cleanse and kick those families out of their homes, then they should be setting a precedent For their own legal system, that would allow the thousands of Palestinian families in East and West Jerusalem to reclaim their houses back. Even, for example, Al Kurd family, they would claim their house in Jaffa back as well in Jaffa. And Palestinians, you know, have been kicked out of homes violently through force in many, many cities and and villages around uh, Palestine. Um, Of course, there are other cases of settlement being built on uh, public land or different cases, but. We have deeds that show our our properties, so why not just make a bring more attention to this idea, this fact that they are using the Supreme Court, the the legal system, to do this in Sheikh Jarrah, But at the same time, we we should be able to do that to our own properties on the other side, but they're not letting it. Like that is apartheid. That is a, a racist uh, system that is not really legal, dependent at all. And I don't know. It's just I, fe- I felt like. More people should know that this is the case. Those houses are not Jewish houses, not Jewish neighborhoods. They became Jewish neighborhoods after the Israeli state legalized the theft of those homes. What makes that right, and whatever happens, just wrong. Like it's just um, it's a very, it's a very um, wide topic. But I think throughout July, I felt I connected with more people, spoke with more people and in Karim, for example, and. I heard stories of people who were successful enough, who actually managed to um, reclaim houses um, in West Jerusalem. I went to Ikrit in the north with a friend from, uh, she was from Kufri Yassif. Her parents are both from Ikrit. So um, this is a Palestinian Christian village in the north. Uh, her mom is from Tarshiha and dad from Kufri Yassif, but both hail from Ikrit. That's where both parents had to leave after 48. I learned more about the the military court orders, the how they destroyed the villages. I keep going to those places where um, in Palestine, where like there's a national park now built by the KKL, the Jewish JNF, uh, uh, the Jewish National Fund. I was like, okay, this is a park. Let's just find the trace of Palestinian existence. And I would find it. I would find this well, this uh, house uh, that was destroyed, <coughs> the cactus tree, and all that. I feel like. People should know that we really, really, really exist everywhere. and We have the papers for it and everything their state is built upon is a lie and just theft. And if they really want to kick us out from Sheikh Jarrah, we can use do the same thing to kick them off everywhere that they claim is theirs. That's literally the same the same game they're playing. It's just that they don't want us at all to be in Palestine and that's a big problem.
1: You mentioned earlier a court family sort of did a very good job in publicizing the, the case of Sheikh Jarrah around the world. I mean, the use of a very good English, uh, synthetic up to the point with a, with a very clear vocabulary drove the attention of many that didn't know much about Sheikh Jarrah. But you're right. I mean, when you look at the, the, the history of a city and you think about places like Katamon, which used to be this very wealthy mixed neighborhood before 1948, and then, obviously, all the Palestinians' family were kicked out. Yeah, nowadays mm. there is an amazing project, uh, Jerusalem, We Are Here, um, which is essentially a website that allows people to use the technology of Google Maps and find their own old uh, houses. Uh, this was uh, by Dorit Naaman, who's an Israeli activist, uh, uh, and she worked with other Palestinians. But that doesn't give people the real sense of a house. It's only a way of connecting with those properties and obviously to revive memories, like you mentioned, or your own family. Despite the fact that there are papers, and you know those papers could give effectively back properties, but it doesn't happen because this law, and reinforced by a 1970 law, which uh, we talked mm-hmm. about many times here on the show, uh, essentially discriminates. So Jews can actually claim back properties, but Palestinians cannot. So... Here we are. We have a segregated, uh, and you use the right word, an apartheid system in place. We're reaching the end of the the interview, but I I really want to talk about your your passion here, uh, which is running. First of all, I wanted to ask you, what was your last uh, long run? Um, And then I want to know about uh, running in Jerusalem. How does it feel? How, How is it to run across the borders, the invisible borders, of the city of Jerusalem
0: my last long run I think 20 kilometers is that long run or, or a marathon we asking because <laughs> my last marathon was in Malta I was studying in Malta I think last year and um, uh, training for the marathon I would run the entire island that's it's that small like <laughs> and the marathon itself was quite fun because you're just doing laps around the whole island it's, it's a very small place uh, last year I think yeah in March just just before covid hit like that week where like it's italy and um china were not allowed to participate in the marathon anyone who had a boarding pass from italy was like okay bye-bye but uh, that was the last last marathon before covid actually hit i did a 20 kilometer run just last was it yom kippur last week two two weeks ago i thought yom kippur is a perfect day to run in west jerusalem (laughs) Uh, usually I do run on Saturdays, I go up in the morning, I, I run around uh, the empty streets of like Western Jerusalem mostly, but Yom Kippur was a very special day because I was like, okay, I'm going to run in my Jerusalem. And I did a run from my house in uh, Bet Hanina, and then just went straight to West Jerusalem and then just zigzagged throughout all the neighborhoods, like just enjoying this morning. It was like no cars, no people, no vehicles, nothing, the weather is great, no Israelis inside. <laughs> I'm just like running through Jerusalem and uh, having a blast it's not something i usually enjoy to run in jerusalem it's um it's first of all it's a very busy city it's very crowded and uh my mom doesn't think it's safe she was like why are you running in jerusalem Jalan? what if they know you're arab your arabi like no i don't think they think people like me run <laughs> so it's okay i'm safe <laughs> and um she always fears for my safety of course in jerusalem that's been a concern for for years now like uh, whenever I'm, I'm there alone she would be worried it's like don't speak Arabic don't do this that because of course there's a history of violence towards uh, Palestinian Jerusalemites in Jerusalem and I told her like mom don't worry I'm safe um uh, West Jerusalem they've uh, they've ha- they, they have some good infrastructure for running they've invested in that because um, They enjoy running too, but for myself, I just don't really enjoy it. I'd rather, for example, run with a running group in Ramallah. Uh, Sometimes I go to Jaffa to run uh, along the the seaside uh, if the weather permits. Of course, in summer, it's just impossible. Even at 6 a.m., humidity is like insane. Uh, So most of my running is done usually in the West Bank, in Ramallah, where I feel it's like fresh air. It's nice. I've got a running group. We're called um, Right Movement. We are the ones who organized the, the marathons and Bethlehem and all that. And in Jerusalem, my favorite trail, uh, we do it like once or twice uh, a month. Uh, we go to Sataf. It's the location of a destroyed village, 1948. Um, this is a, a genuinely a beautiful trail. The Sataf village is next to Suba village. It's just, um, I think, towards uh, s- southwest of Jerusalem. Um, it's like a 10 minute drive. It's very remote, and uh, we're running on this mountain in a circular loop for eight kilometers, the, the whole loop. And it's just very nice to be out in, like, literally outdoors, but still in Jerusalem. And there's nothing around us except trees. Of course, those trees are covering the ruins of Palestinian villages. But um, we always keep repeating that we're running in Sattaf. We're running in this location or Lifta, for example. There's a path in Lifta as well that we run run through. Those are the nice runs. In the city itself, it's hard. But it's nice that we have a group of Palestinian runners, uh, right to movement, and we organize runs in Lifta or Sataf, um, very often. And then we have social gatherings, too, in the same area. So we finish our run, we're all finished, then we gather some wood and lumber, and then we make shakshuka for a for morning breakfast. <laughs> that's the tradition we always do as well it's like if you want to run with us sure come run but you'll have a tree after so make sure you run well you break sweat um but yeah mostly if i'm running it's not in the city of jerusalem if i'm running in within the city it's just not safe it's annoying it's super crowded and uh i don't think i've ever enjoyed running as much as I did in, 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 in Dundee, in Scotland. <laughs> just running around the riverside for like two three hours, four hours, and then not interrupted by any checkpoint or anything. Here, I have to calculate and have every checkpoint, every border wall. It's like doing laps in Ramallah, for example. We're just doing laps around each other, like in circular loops, 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 trying not to, to downhill and uphill. It's very like mountainous, uh, hilly, the areas here. We work with what we've got. This is what we've got. <laughs> the Israelis have some, some other different world, of course, for running and you know, outdoor activities, but I'm not part of that society. So I, I wouldn't be going to, uh, to, their, to their towns and cities to run. I just don't feel comfortable enough to do that. So I'd rather stick to my East Jerusalem or Ramallah or just Jaffa.
1: I always found uh, Istanbul, the worst place uh, where I lived for a run, but I must say that in the years uh, I lived in Sheikh Jarrah, on <laughs> top of the hill, running was uh, hard. And yes, yeah. I joined a few people running in Ramallah too, but I mostly end up running on a treadmill at the YMC <laughs> down, uh, you know, close by to the old yeah. city. Uh, not exactly the best, but at some point it became the only the only way. I mean, between the traffic, the people, and. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember there were a few international work, you know, just people working in the various uh, consulates up in Sheikh Jarrah. We went for a few runs, but uh, never really felt it was like, uh, uh can we say, a runnable city? I don't even know if this word uh, exists. Mm, but uh, stay hard. Yeah. But but I but I, I I do share what what you said about it. Uh, I've one question about running. You know, I lived in many parts of the world, and many times I run. Uh, in the wilderness and i've been uh, chased and bitten by dogs but last june you uh, I, I think it was a first uh, you were running this um, let's say run uh walk mm-hmm. between sheikh jarrah and Silwan, one part of the safe sheikh jarrah and safe Silwan one movement and you were beaten at the uh, finish line by israeli forces how that happened <sighs>
0: Um, that's, that's a bit insane, actually. Uh, the whole the whole event, how it unfolded. Um, as you know, I think around that time there was the movement of Save Sheikh Jarrah, and then Save Salwan was like um, just emerging as like a hashtag because uh, Salwan uh, families and friends, they thought. Uh, we have opportunity to highlight our struggle as well. You know, Silwan has been struggling for years with demolitions and house evictions and all that uh, ethnic cleansing, forms of ethnic cleansing. So when <coughs> Sheikh Sharrah took the, the, the limelight, um, both, uh, like both areas, both activists from both uh, Save Sheikh Sharrah and Save Silwan thought, let's get people to know and connect both areas. And the best way uh, they thought about it was doing a run in jerusalem because sheikh was popular with the people with the visitors with the people who are just learning about sheikh for the first time the location is easy to find i'm sure you know on the main street just south of jerusalem the old city sorry north of jerusalem the old city and Silwan, we know Silwan, we know where it's located but as you said it's a very crowded place it's um uh, town, I mean, and it's very uh, small streets that people don't really go if they don't even have to go to Silwan So it's a very, very good point that they actually try to get people to come from Sheikh Jarrah, the crowds would always go to Sheikh Jarrah, to go to Silwan through this organized run in a very simple route. And that's how you get more solidarity and more people to actually see what's going on in Batn al-Hawa neighborhood. You can see and learn about the house evictions and the ethnic landing that goes on Silwan. You can connect both areas, both neighbor, both neighborhoods, Batanahwa and Sheikh Jarrah, through the same same lens, and um, it was a very spontaneous thing. There's a thing I don't think the Israelis were expecting us to actually do a run. They they know we're active. We have sports clubs. We run, but it's not as popular as as uh, you can imagine. But. This run, I think it took them by surprise. They just saw people gathering. And when I arrived at Sheikh Jarrah, I was very excited. Like, I was part of what's going on. I was always attending um, the events. It was like a run, Sheikh Jarrah and Sulwan. This is like, this is my call, my calling. I have to do this. And I just got put on my shirt from uh, from Tokyo Marathon a few years ago. It has, um, sorry, <clears throat> it has the Right to Movement logo on the front, Right to Movement Palestine. And uh, I just told my friends, OK, see you soon. I'm just going to shoot. I'm just going to run. It's just like a very short run, 3.5 kilometers. Um, that, was, that was it. To connect from Sheikh Jarrah to Silouan. Um, Of course, I noticed in Sheikh Jarrah itself, there's a heavy Israeli police presence. And they were just like taking photos and zooming in and out. The Shabak officer is like telling the police officer, "Like, take a photo of that guy, this guy. What are they doing? What are they up to? And of course, we were very, I think, in a way, discreet. Everyone was just given a white t-shirt. And then it's like, okay, guys, run. The route is this. You go from here to Bab al zahre and then down. And then you just go down to, um, to silwan through the, uh, I forgot what's it called, that path. But um, it was a very easy route and everyone's like, okay, cool. People just went on and runners like myself were at the front and most people were like running, walking, running, walking, running, walking until they made it there, it's not too far. When we arrived at Silwan, Batn Hawa, of course, for many people it was the first time to arrive in the protest and in the very, very heart of Silwan. This is like we call it al-Wusta, the very central neighborhood, Batn al Hawa. And uh, of course, uh, the situation there is dire. But uh, it was a, it was a scene that you we would have never imagined before. It wasn't just people from Silwan; it was Jerusalemites, Palestinians, all gathered in the very heart of Silwan it Was a very celebratory mood. There was music being played, uh, water given out. It's a race that finished in Silwan, and they were so welcoming. It was like, Welcome, Silwan, and everyone's happy. It was like, I'm from Silwan myself, I'm a Silwani guy, but I've never lived in Silwan. <laughs> but uh, I still, I'm still like always telling people, I'm from Silwan. Um, it was, a, it was a great day. My sister was there, my friends were there. I had a friend with a puppy as well. Not a puppy, it's a big dog, but it's a very you know, small size, but um, not older than a puppy. Um, just seeing friends and casually chatting and taking pictures and singing with the music and with the party—literally a party—and I thought this is amazing. I'm so, I'm so glad no one interrupted it. I was just being expressing my happiness that there's I can't see any Israeli police officer in this area, and it's fair enough. It's a very central Arab uh, Palestinian neighborhood, and there's no reason for them to show up. And then just out of nowhere, it's like, oh my god, why are they coming in? Like a like a big bunch of them, like a dozen maybe, just walked right through the crowd, like pushing people right through the crowd, going to the tent. I think they were to confiscate the speakers and the sound system. And I was like, if they never showed up, we would just gone home peacefully, and that's the end of the story. We had a good run, and we're done. The same right police officers who would be seen in Sheikh Jarrah, who were beating us every night for the past few weeks, they were the ones who were there as well. Like I could. Faces and you know, The Shabbat guy that always goes with the chief of the police and it's like the same angry people who are beating us there, they brought them in here to do the exact same thing in Silwan And it just all felt too connected, to be honest. Um, as soon as they walked in, um, they felt like there's a, people are protesting, why are you here? And that's when they started throwing sun into the crowd. You know, people are not expecting a police response or in, in this shape and this violence. Uh, there was uh, some chaos, and people were running around, escaping. I was like, I just took out my phone, I was like, this is just unreal, like, why are they coming in here? I think they just got even angrier and angrier, and just started rushing towards people, like, leave now, leave now, and they're just hitting us with buttons, like, just stop, don't beat me, and I'm in my full running gear, and like just hitting me once, twice, three times, and then it just went super insane, really. Um, I think... After I got beaten the first time, I tried to take shelter in the tent. Like I went back to the tent to take shelter. Uh, the police went up to chase people around the, the neighborhood. And then they came back again. And like they were shouting at us from afar, was, like, we're saying like, we're just taking shelter here, like just leave us alone. And they didn't like us still being there. So they rushed towards us again and started beating us again. Of course, I had all that documented uh, in, in, my, in my thread on Twitter. I have one last question. You're very young, talented.
1: Definitely. I was wondering, what what are your you know future projects?
0: I I love writing. I think I always think I have so much to say through writing. I, I read a lot of novels, uh, philosophy. I'm very spiritual as a very spiritual person. I have my own views of how I see life, view life, and I think I always have like a unique story to tell. Just I need to get myself to be bit more focused to be honest, but I, I see myself as a writer who writes good things. <laughs> I don't know the extent of that is. But I just want to be able to reach to more people through very unique and different personal personal stories to be honest. Personal fiction perhaps I don't know but just my right to tell my own personal perspective to people.
1: While we wish you good luck with that this was uh, <laughs> Jalal uh, Abukater that you can follow on jalalabukater.com or the various uh, social media accounts, particularly on Twitter and Instagram. Jalal, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank, thank, thank you, Roberto. Thank you for having me. This was enjoyable. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to
1: support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at
0: Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.